At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. We're going to open God's Word and continue a series that we began a number of weeks ago that's anchored in Matthew chapters 18 through 20. And this series is called Relating To, because in these chapters, Jesus is providing some direction to his followers about how we should relate to a number of different things in our lives. How should we relate to children? How should we relate to temptation? How should we relate to those who have lost their way, even those within the body of Christ who have lost their way? We've seen that over the last several weeks, and today we're going to continue that series by looking at how we are called to relate to those who have wronged us, those who have sinned against us. And we're going to see that from Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 down through verse 35. But before we look at those verses, I I want to tell you all a story about five men who lived back in the 1950s. Uh, These five men included Nate Saint and Peter Fleming and Jim Elliott and Roger Udarian and Ed McCulley. These five men were a part of a mission outreach called Operation Alka that sought to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to the Wadani people who lived in a very isolated life in the rainforests of the Amazon in the nation of Ecuador. They set out on this mission and Over time, they eventually made contact with the Wadani people, but part of what makes their story so memorable, even now, some 60 years later, is because these five men lost their life as a part of that mission. The Wadani people were a violent people at that time, and they did not like outsiders coming in, and they killed them with spears on what was called Palm Beach on a river right outside their villages. Now, if that was the end of the story, it would be an interesting story, and it would be a tragic story, but that would be maybe a footnote inside of the history of missions in the nation of Ecuador. But what makes this story remarkable is what happened next. You see, when these men died, their families did not distance from the Wadani, but they actually moved to the Wadani people, continuing the mission of sharing Christ with them. And over time, the Wadani people, many of them, came to trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, including some who participated in the killings that day at Palm Beach. Now, that transformation was so intense that this photo really tells an amazing story. Because in this photo, what we see are two of Nate Saint's children being baptized by leaders in the church among the Wadani people. And some of those who are doing that baptism were some of the men responsible for killing Nate Saint, their father. Now, friends, when you hear that story, it's almost hard for us to relate to it, isn't it? I mean, how is it that something like that happens? How is it that forgiveness could be extended over something so grave? Well, what's remarkable is, as that story has been told over and over again, Steve Saint, the young man in the white t-shirt in this photo, talked about how when they began to share the gospel with the Wadani people, one of the challenges they had was that the gospel wasn't in their language, the Bible wasn't in their language, and so they had to translate it. And as they were translating the Bible into the language of the Wadani, they found out that there was no word 
in the Wadani language for forgiveness. They had to teach them that concept. But isn't it remarkable to think as they taught them what forgiveness was, they had a living display among those people. In other words, it wasn't just an idea. They saw it lived out. They saw the forgiveness that was offered by Steve Saint and his family and by Elizabeth Elliot and others who continued to love, continued to reach out, continued to share the gospel even in the face of such violence. Friends, as we gather here today, I want to ask you a question. There wasn't forgiveness in the language of the Wadani, but is there forgiveness in your language? Now, when we think about that, there probably is forgiveness in your language as it relates to you. You're very much excited about the option of God forgiving you. You're very much excited when others around you offer forgiveness to you. But what about you forgiving others? Is that a part of your vision? Is it a part of your plan? Is it part of what it looks like for you to follow Christ? Well, Jesus says that it is to be a part of our vocabulary. And in Matthew chapter 18, he gives us some direction to follow concerning those who have wronged us. This morning, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 18, verses 18 to 35. And it's my prayer as we look at these verses that the Lord shows us a way of how he wants us to relate to each other, specifically to those who have sinned against us. I want to read these verses for us, and then we'll back up and look at them in a little more detail. Chapter 18, verse 15 says this. Jesus is talking to the disciples and says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Then Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brothers sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. And when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. 
And should you have not had mercy on your fellow servant, as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, friends, in these 21 verses, we're going to see three things today of significance as we think about how we relate to those who have wronged us. The first thing that we need to see is this. We need to remember the Father's heart. Remember the Father's heart. Now, this idea, though it permeates the the context of the passage, actually it's helpful for us to look back at verses 10 through 14. An important reminder, anytime we, we study the Bible, the context is always really important. And so verse 15 that we read follows verse 14. Now, I realize that's some crackerjack analysis for you, that 15 follows 14, but it's important for us to remember in our study that what Jesus is talking about in terms of confrontation and even church discipline follows a statement of the Father's heart for those who have lost their way. Remember back in verses 10 through 14, verses we looked at last Sunday, we see Jesus telling a story about a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away. And the shepherd does not say at that point, well, I still got 99, we don't need that one. No, the the story goes that the shepherd leaves the 99 on the mountain and goes and finds the one sheep who has wandered away to bring them back into the fold, to bring them back into fellowship. That's the father's heart. The passage is, is taught and told by Jesus in this context to talk about believers in Jesus Christ who have lost their way. They matter to God, therefore they should matter to us. Jesus was charging the disciples to pursue those who were once with them but who had lost their way, that they might be restored in fellowship to the Father and in fellowship with the community of believers. The context of this passage is the context of the Father's heart. We need to remember that. But as we remember the Father's heart to to reach out to others, the second thing we need to see is found in verses 15 through 20 of our passage, and that is that we are called to reach out to restore. We're called to reach out to those who have lost their way with the objective of restoring them to fellowship with the Lord and with the body. That is the call. That is the objective. And we are called to even pursue that with those who have wronged us in some way, with those who have sinned against us in some way. The logic would go something like this. As we are called in verses 10 through 14 to echo the Father's heart in pursuit of those who have lost their way, we will find ourselves in contact with some who have hurt us in the past. What are we to do as we pursue one who has sinned against us? Are we to ignore them or are we to have some kind of pursuit of them? The passage would indicate that we are called to pursue them in some way. As we pursue them, what is is the goal? Well, the goal is that they would be restored to fellowship with the Lord and to fellowship with the community of believers. Uh, We see that in verse 15 where 
Jesus says that when you go and you, you talk to this one who has sinned against you, if he listens to you, in other words, if he takes to heart what you say, if he repents of that sin and turns away from it, at that point, he says, you will have gained your brother. You will have turned him away from how he had lost his way and turned him back to fellowship with the people of God. The goal in this confrontation is restoration. Now, if that's the goal and the context is with those who have sinned against us, then what are the conditions that Jesus talks about and where Matthew 18 applies? In other words, how do I know if Matthew 18 is talking about a situation in my life? Well, it's important for us to look at what Jesus says. The first condition of Matthew 18 that we see here is that someone has sinned against you. This is not just some comment that is inviting us to be the sin police, for us to to run around and write tickets on any misbehavior that we see happening in the church around us. Now, there are other passages that encourage us to spur one another on to love and good deeds, and and certainly, uh, you know, calling out sin as we see it as a part of that, but that's not the context of Matthew 18. The context of Matthew 18 is the context of when someone has sinned against you. If someone has sinned against you, then the process that is going to follow applies. Well, the first thing is that someone has sinned against you. The second thing is that others have witnessed this sin or its effects. As this process plays out, There'll be others who come in who are called witnesses. And they're not just people who are witnesses to the confrontation. They're people who are witnesses to the activity. In other words, they've seen a pattern of behavior. They've seen the effects of the behavior. And they come alongside as a part of a process of confrontation that we'll see in just a moment because they have they've witnessed it. So if someone has sinned against you and others have, have witnessed that sin or its effects... Matthew 18 applies. And then the third section is, if that sin that it was committed against you is, is unrepentant. In other words, it has never been turned away from, and it's ongoing, and it's damaging the testimony of the church, seen in why part of the, the outflow of this will be a public declaration. It's, it's to put a stop to the damage of the testimony of the followers of Jesus because of ongoing and unrepentant sin that is damaging to the testimony of the community. If those things apply to a situation that you're thinking about, then Matthew 18 is is applying to you. We may be able to pull some principles in other situations, but this is the context that Jesus gives. Well, not only does Jesus give us the, the conditions or the context, but then he gives us the process. What are we to do if we find that someone has sinned against us? Well, the first step in that process is that we would pray, that we would pray. Matthew chapter 18, verses 19 and 20, verses Jesus teaches here that we have tried to make say a lot of different things over the years. I don't mean we as in me or you, but Christians in general have seen these verses and have tried to have them say a number of things. But what they mean, I think, in the context here is connected to this conversation about a confrontation. It says in verse 19, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. 
This is not saying that if everybody left but one person in this worship service, we would need to shut it down because Jesus wasn't here. There's only one. Or if two of you were here and no one else was here, we would say it's worthwhile because two or more are gathered. This passage is not talking about that. This passage is talking about in the process of confrontation. We go before the Lord. We center around him. We ask him to work. And as we get together with the two or three witnesses to go and to confront, having spent time on our knees in prayer, we go not alone and we go not just with two or three, but we go with the presence of the Lord with us. That's the idea. The first thing that we do in this process is that we pray. The second step in this process is that we approach this person one-on-one. We confront them in a one-on-one setting to let them know the sin that has been committed and give them the opportunity to acknowledge that sin and to repent. And if that happens, your brother or sister who has sinned against you is, is one, a process of restoration has begun. All too often when something happens, we want to gossip to others as opposed to just going and having a conversation with our brother or sister, giving them a chance to acknowledge and own up to what they have done. Third step in that process, though, is if someone does not acknowledge that in that one-on-one setting, that you would bring the witnesses with you, those who have seen the sin or have seen its effects, to come alongside and to speak also into the life of this person. Again, the idea, the heart is for restoration. The heart is for them to acknowledge that sin and to repent. But what if they don't? If they don't, it says that the assembly will be informed. Translated here in chapter 18 as church, but the idea is the assembly. It goes to a larger body. It goes to those who would understand. That might be it goes to the small group. It goes to the elder team. It goes to the congregation in general, depending on how the sin played out. But the idea is that everyone would be invited then. Let's implore our brother. Let's implore our sister to turn away from the activity that they are participating in, that they might turn back and be restored and to follow Christ. That's the the process that is laid out. But even then, Jesus understands and acknowledges the category that even someone who is pursued to this level might still walk away, might still say, I don't know what you're talking about. At that point, Jesus says they are to be treated like a Gentile or a tax collector. What he's saying is that there's a break in fellowship that happens. But here's the thing. How did Jesus relate to Gentiles and to tax collectors? Did he not pursue them? Did he not share the gospel with them? Did he not invite them to repent and to come to faith in Christ? Absolutely, but they did so from the outside of the community and not from the inside. They're they're not, they're not done at that point, but they hit another category. Their intimate fellowship with the community might be broken, but the Father's heart for them has not changed. That's the process that that Jesus lays out. And, you know, as we think about that process, we're we're challenged at times because we we just feel like, well, who am I to confront someone? Who who am I to to speak about this? And and the answer to that really is, is found in the fact that this is sin, and sin is not defined by you and I and by our proclivities or by our what we think are our preferences or something like that, even by our emotions. 
But sin is defined by God. Jesus says in verse 18, he starts talking in a very similar way as he did back in Matthew chapter 16 about whatever is bound on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever is loosed on earth is loosed in heaven. Now, when we see those phrases, that in some ways that sounds like, hey, whatever we decide on earth, God is good with. Doesn't it sound a little bit like that? It's kind of confusing. But I actually think there's a better translation of the Greek language that lies behind this that makes more sense to us. And it's actually even footnoted in most of your Bibles. You'll see footnoted and referenced at the bottom. And that is this. What is bound on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And what is loosed on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. In other words, what is allowed or what is uh, forbidden inside the church shall have a direct connection to what happens in heaven. In other words, we don't try to get earth's will done in heaven, but it's heaven's will that is done upon the earth. When we think about confronting someone, we go and confront them not on the basis of just our feelings. We go and confront them on the basis of God's Word. And so we see this process and the authority behind it. But it's important before we get to application of this for for me to make one more statement. And that is for us to understand that Matthew chapter 18 are not the only verses in the Bible that relate to discipline. And they're not the only verses of the Bible that relate to sin. This isn't it. This is just, this is one spot where this is referred to. And it doesn't even say that all of the authority in the world is found in the church. As a matter of fact, there are other instruments of God's judgment that take place upon the earth. One of those being human government. We look at 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter, who was present for this congregation, inspired by the Spirit of God, writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. In other words, the government is a minister of God to punish evildoers. You know, sadly, Abusive people at times will try to find refuge inside of Matthew 18 and say that because there are not these multiple witnesses, because this process wasn't followed, that somehow I'm the victim in the process, and they try to find solace inside of the church. And I just want to say on, before us as we study this, that abusers finding refuge inside the church is absolutely contrary to the Word of God. That when someone has broken the law, there can be pursuit of forgiveness, but there also can be consequences that they must face by legal authorities. And those two things can happen even simultaneously. And so when we see this process of of restoration, we, we need to acknowledge that those who might try to find loopholes inside of this of protection in the face of abuse will find no sanctuary in the heart of God. They can be pursued, forgiveness can be given, connection with the Lord can be there, but there still can be temporal consequences. Having said that, what do we do with these verses? How do we apply them ourselves? You know, when I go through this, there are probably many of you who are thinking back doing some kind of of an autopsy on the last 30 years of your life, and you're thinking about, man, I... 
I'm going to use this verse, and I'm going to go, I'm going to find this person that wronged me a decade ago, and I can't wait. I'm fantasizing now about the conversation I might have with them. Others of you might be scared to death. Wait a minute, do you mean I have to do this? What, what about you, uh, going back? I don't, I don't know. I haven't talked to this person in five, six, seven years. How is this going to work? How is this going to play out? Here's what I want to encourage all of us to do. Whatever the Lord wants to do in the past with you in this passage is between you and the Lord. But here's my challenge to us. Let's take these verses seriously from this point going forward. Let's take these verses seriously from this point going forward. What would it be like if if our church, from this point going forward, instead of when somebody sins against us, instead of us having 10 other side conversations, what if we just went to them and we said, hey, this is what happened? and give them the chance to repent. And if, and if, that, if that doesn't happen and it doesn't acknowledge it and there's some others that are around that could speak to that, that we could go, that we would have a, a short account with others in the body of Christ that would lead to much greater restoration and closeness in our fellowship. I think that's what Jesus was after here. He called us to reach out and to restore. Is there a situation even in your last week that God might want you to respond in some way in connection to this passage. Remember the Father's heart. Reach out to restore. But the third point that we see inside of this, and this is really important, is that we are called to root in forgiveness. To root in forgiveness. What I mean by that is just as a plant is planted in some kind of a soil, so we as followers of Jesus are planted in some kind of soil. And the soil that we have been planted in is the soil of forgiveness. Why are we called to behave this way to others? Why are we called to forgive? We're called to forgive because of what God has done for us. Now, this point unfolds as Peter, I'm so thankful for Peter because he, he gets the conversation moving so often, right? And, and Peter here gets the conversation moving with Jesus. Hearing what Jesus just said, Peter asks the question. He came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now, here's what Peter is thinking. It sounds to me, Jesus, like you want us to be forgiving and merciful. I get it. So I want to know what are the limits of that forgiveness. And so he says seven times. Now, when we hear that, we kind of chuckle. But here's the thing. Here's what Peter was doing. You know what rabbis taught in Jesus' day? They taught that you needed to forgive people three times. After three times, you didn't have to forgive them anymore. So Peter, understanding the heart of Jesus, is thinking something like this. I'm going to go... Twice as many as the local rabbi plus one, and then we're good, Jesus, right? Like seven times and we're good. Or he's thinking, I'm going to pick a a perfect number, you know, seven. That'll be the limit. Well, how how does Jesus respond? Jesus says to him in verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, your Bible might say instead of 77 times, it might say 70 times seven. And the truth is the original language allows for both of those translations. But I don't think how we translate it matters all that much in this instance because Jesus wasn't giving another number. He wasn't saying, hey, you know what? 77 times and then you're good. If this person has sinned against you the 78th time, you can just let them have it. Or he wasn't saying the 491th time, 91st time, something. At that point, then you no longer have to forgive them. That wasn't what Jesus was saying. 
What Jesus was saying was, you, you think seven times, that's, that's nice, Peter. Let me tell you, it is way greater than that. As a matter of fact, it is forgiveness without a limit. That's what Jesus says. You're called to forgive. And the reason why we're called to forgive is because we are rooted in forgiveness. And Jesus tells a story to remind his followers of that. And the story he tells is about a king who is going to collect on some old debts. And one of his servants owed him a lot of money. As a matter of fact, one of the servants owed him, it says here, 10,000 talents. Now, how much is 10,000 talents? Well, well, 10,000, the word 10,000 was the word myriad in Greek. It is the biggest number or biggest word for a number that Greek language knows at that time. So this is like the biggest number that he could say, a myriad, uh, you know, 10,000. Then he says talents. Talent was the largest denomination of money. It was equivalent to about 75 pounds of silver, the largest denomination of money that they had. So what Jesus, when he tells this story, he tells it in such a way that it almost would have gotten a chuckle from the group because it's as if he says, you know, the biggest number of the biggest denomination, that's how much this guy owed. In, In our language, we might say he owed a gazillion dollars, right? That's what Jesus says. There is someone who owed a gazillion dollars, and this person comes before him. Now, you do not get in a gazillion dollars worth of debt doing simple things. I mean, this is the implication of the story is that he probably embezzled this money from the king. Only the king has that kind of money. And he comes before the king and he begs forgiveness. And the king says in the original language, he actually says, I'm going to consider this like a loan and I'm going to forgive it. Based on your request and you humbling yourself before me, I'm going to consider this as a loan, not as a crime, but as a loan. And I'm going to cancel it out. That's what Jesus says in the story. Well, then this servant who has just been forgiven of so much is excited. He's going to try to put the pieces of his life back together. And as he does that, he does what seems unthinkable, right? He goes and he finds somebody that owes him some money. And he tries to leverage them to build up his nest egg. It says that this person owed him a hundred denarii. Now, this is not a small amount of money. A hundred denarii is not a small amount of money. A hundred denarii would be the equivalent of a hundred days' wages. This is significant. We might quibble about the amount, but I, I put say it's worth about $10,000. This guy owes him a good used car. That's not a small thing. It's fairly significant. But he goes and he demands payment. Well, when the master hears about it, he loses his mind. Why? Because someone who had been forgiven a gazillion dollars is suddenly throwing in jail somebody that owed 10000 And the fact that this forgiving of the gazillion did not transform the heart of this individual to make it possible for him to deal differently with his servant seems totally incongruent with the master. And so the story goes. And Jesus tells that story for a very simple reason. He wants to remind us of how much we have been forgiven. You know, each and every one of us in this room have sinned and fallen short of God's perfection. Not a little bit, but a lot. You know, earlier in the service, we we read a prayer asking God's forgiveness, and it seemed like a long prayer, right? Eventually, we convicted all of us in the room at some level. This is just a prayer. It doesn't even come close to 
quantifying how far all of us fall short of God's perfection. We are a gazillion dollars in debt, and yet our heavenly Father forgave us in Christ. He said, I'm going to take all of the wrath that is deserving of you, and I'm going to pour it out upon Jesus on the cross so that you might be forgiven, so that you might be reconciled to me. That's what Jesus has done for us. And this story is is told to remind us that we have been forgiven of that much. And if we have been forgiven of that much, should we not be willing to forgive the $10,000 debts in our life? 10,000 is not an insignificant amount, but compared to a gazillion, it's no contest. I'm not great with the new math, but that equation looks right. I even had my sixth grade son check it for me. It's a massive difference, right? Therefore, we are called to forgive. One of the hallmarks of people whose hearts have been transformed by the gospel and who understand the depth of our forgiveness is that we are forgiving people as well. That's what Jesus says. It is inconsistent. Even in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have sinned against us. This is the call and the the hallmark of followers of Christ, and Jesus wants to make sure that we remember it. Now, it's important for us to remember what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is something that can transpire with you alone. If somebody has sinned against you, it is possible for you to forgive them and yet not be reconciled in relationship with them. You see, in our lives, there's these big boulders of painful events and sins that have been committed against us. And if we're not careful, we end up chained to them. And we live our lives a little bit, and then we're stuck because we're chained to the pain of this past. When we forgive someone, what happens is the metal cutters come in and cut that chain so that we are no longer defined by those events and the pain and the bitterness that we have associated with them, but we are going to walk away from those things and allow God to deal with that as we follow him. We're called to to forgive. But you can have a situation where the, the, the bolt is cut and yet reconciliation does not occur. The restoration of the relationship doesn't happen because of temporal consequences and fallout from different decisions that were made over a long period of time, or you can have different things, but but you can be freed from that, and you can free them from that and leave them with the Lord to deal with those things that are in their life. We see a, a category for that, even in the story that Jesus tells right before this, where he talks about the person that, even after the whole assembly is aware of the sin, refuses to repent. We can still forgive that person. Still cut the chain and move on in Christ, inspired by what He has done for us. Friends, as we gather here today and as we look at God's Word, this is a very practical section, isn't it? And it's a section that is very challenging. It's very challenging for me personally. What does it what does it mean for us to live this out as a congregation? What does this mean for me to live it out as an individual. And, and for you, this is something God has called all of us to. But God is, is clear when he, when he gives us both the rationale behind it, God's heart for those who have lost their way, his heart for restoration, 
in his heart for forgiveness based on the way that he has treated us, we are invited to live that grace out in our relationships with others. Forgiveness is this interesting word. Is it in your vocabulary? How does God want you to live that out this week? Father, we thank you for the forgiveness that you've given to us. We thank you for the love that you have shown us in Christ that transforms our soul and makes it possible for us to to entertain uh, the the option of being gracious to those around us. Father, thank you that you are are God and we are not, and you can take care of these situations. And Father, even as I look around this room, I know the pain and the difficulties that so many have gone through here and the, and the, the, the sin that has been committed against them and the things that they are dealing with. And so, Father, we do not come to this passage as some kind of abstraction or a paper done for seminary, but this is a a passionate pastoral comment from the Lord of the universe. And so we come and we, we ask that you would give us the faith to follow you, even in this, relating to those who have sinned against us. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather, and we pray that all of us would find that forgiveness, that gazillion dollar forgiveness that is found in Jesus. We thank you and pray these things in his name. Amen.